12.36 on this Monday afternoon. Well, you might not know this, but we are into emergency preparedness week. That means many agencies right across Canada are taking the opportunity to remind people about the importance of being prepared for emergencies. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Daniel Stevens. He is the Director of Emergency Management for the City of Vancouver. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Happy to be here. It's something I think we get reminders about this, and it's great that we have emergency preparedness weeks to do this. But do you get a sense, or do we know how many people really are prepared for an emergency? I think that's the million-dollar question. We we don't really know uh, the level of preparedness until something actually happens, and and even then, um, you know, there, there's different levels of preparedness for different types of emergencies that we that we may face, and that's really why the theme of our emergency preparedness week this week is is to be prepared and know your risks. So the first step is understanding what's at risk, so you can prepare for the right things. And when you talk about what types of emergencies, do you then, is it kind of a, a checklist of, well, this is what I need if there is an earthquake, or this is what I need if there's flooding, or, or kind of the, the different, uh, making sure you've kind of got the big ones covered? Yeah, there, there's a range. There, there are large events that happen. So the earthquake, uh, the heat dome that we experienced uh, a couple of years ago, uh, floods quite topical in, in the province at the moment. Um, those are all big things that you, you may want to have some supplies and you may want to have some plans for. But there are also the smaller things. If, you, if there's a, a fire in your apartment or a chemical spill nearby and you need to act, evacuate quickly, what kind of things might you need to take with you then? What's your plan to reunite with your family uh, for some of those smaller events as well? Uh, so let's go through the list of that. So, so being prepared at home, what should everybody have as far as things that you are prepared, like you said, if those very unexpected events take place? Yeah, there are things that you can um, think about at home, again, depending on, on the risks that you have. But in, in Vancouver, we have uh, this wildfire smoke that can affect us. There's extreme heat of course, all the way up to flooding, earthquakes, hazardous material spills. So some things that will be helpful in those situations are, you know, obviously food and, um, and water that'll keep you, keep you going if you weren't able to, to get to the store. Uh, the pandemic showed us that uh, even, even non, you know, the non-typical type emergencies that we think of can, can impact supply chains and, and cause, um, cause havoc with uh, the shelves in, in the stores. But batteries, um, radio to, to listen to, uh, updates from from the media to find out what's going on, charges to your cell phones, and then extra things that you might need, uh, like medication, extra glasses, things that are quite personal to you, both at home or if you needed to quickly evacuate. Um, but we, we're, we're shifting a little bit. There's lots of lists online, and we have some on vancouver.ca slash be prepared for people to you know, to, to look through and, and gather the, the appropriate supplies. But we're really shifting as well to who is in your kit. Uh, we know that the community needs to, to come together during emergencies and we'll be relying on people around us just as much as we'll be relying on the things that we've put together ahead of time. And one of the checks or one of the things on the list is knowing your hazards. Is that including not only kind of those external hazards and, and things that could happen, but also knowing uh, what are the hazards in your house or, or what might you be dealing with if there is an earthquake or something like that? Absolutely. There are lots of things around us uh, in our homes that can can hurt us, uh, whether that's, you know, heavy things up, up high on shelves, whether that's an unstrapped water heater that's uh, up high or a, t- a chimney that may 
may collapse during uh, uh, an earthquake. So knowing what what you know what the risks are in your home and the areas around you, and even in the immediate neighborhood. So there may be you know maybe there's a chemical stored in a nearby light industrial area, or maybe there's a gas station nearby, or something like that. That's you know a lot of lot of things are in place to mitigate the risks from um, from from these. The, these these external hazards, especially in an urban environment, but there's always some level of risk. You can't get things down to zero. Right. And and when you talk about making your plan as well, is that a plan? Uh, because I think one of the things, too, we come so much to depend on, we can use our, our cellular phones, we, though they're working and we can contact people, we can, we can, we'll be able to get in touch with people. That might not be the case, depending on what the emergency is. You're, you're absolutely right, and, and we've seen even in non-emergency times where our, our communication systems have been impacted, uh, wireless and, and otherwise. So having a place where you'll meet family members if you're separated, maybe you're at work, someone's person's at work, the kids are at school, and something you know emergency happens, you need to connect. Having a, a, a clear route to, to get home and, and a meeting place that's close to home and maybe a little ways away as well if, if the, the immediate spot close to home is impacted, um, they're all part of the plan that needs to be in place. And as far as supplies, I would imagine this changes depending on what your home space, your living quarters look like. But is there a a general rule as far as this is the best place to keep your supplies so you will be able to access them if there is an emergency? I mean, that is also quite individual. But there are two sort of kits that we suggest. One is the the things that you'll need if you're able to stay at home. And and that can be a little bit of extra food. It might just mean keeping a little bit of extra stuff in your pantry, Um, maybe putting things under your bed that you can access there, like extra batteries, radios, a little kit. But the the things that you might need to grab and go with, so whether that's uh, uh, copies of your your ID documents, a little bit of money, uh, some snacks, copies of medication, prescriptions, things you'll need to take when you evacuate, we suggest putting those in a small bag that's relatively close to your door. So if you had to get out uh, while the fire alarm's going or, you know, very quickly, you're able to grab it um, and get it home without having to think too much. Right. Isn't that, that's what's called the, the bug out bag? Bug out bag, grab and go kit. There's different names for it, yeah. <laughs> uh, and you mentioned too having a, a radio or, or something to keep to keep in touch. I know even here, uh, we had a, one of the crank radios uh, once. I don't know what's happened to it, but I remember we were all kind of kind of playing with it and cranking it. You really had to crank it a lot to get so you would have any uh, kind of footage or sorry, any kind of service for any length of time. Is it better then to, like you said, have batteries and have some other way of making sure you, you will have the best chance of staying informed? I think having a battery-operated radio is a, is a good bet, and make sure you switch out the batteries when you check your fire alarms twice a year so that you, you know that they're fresh. Uh, the crank radios do provide some level of, uh, of, of backup, I, I suppose, but you're right, they, are, they do take a lot of cranking to, uh, to be able to use depending on the model. Uh, and you mentioned this as well, and, and something that we uh, learned during the pandemic, getting to know your neighbours. Uh, I know there are a lot of people that, that maybe don't, uh, maybe that's by design, but what is the importance of getting to know your neighbours, if they're the neighbours down the hall or perhaps the neighbours next door? I think that goes two ways. Uh, one, it's the support that you may be able to receive. So if, if you know there are people with certain skill sets in your building or in, your, you know, in, in homes nearby, um, maybe there's somebody that has uh, medical skills or somebody that's able to um, 
to to fix uh, your you know, your front door if, if there's an earthquake sort of shifts the the building just to, just enough to make doors uh, you know difficult to close. So depending on what the needs are, having having an idea of who's in your neighborhood uh, is important. But but the other way around is who may need your help, which is probably the most important. And and anything from uh, severe weather where people can't, you know, elderly people, people who need mobility devices are unable to leave their homes as easily. Uh, people during severe extreme heat who may need to be checked on um, and, and let know that uh, that heat is at a dangerous level and maybe even lend a hand to get to a cooling center. Reaching out and knowing who might need your help is is one of the most important things that we can do as, uh, as members of, of society. Look out for each other. And do you think that's changing a bit? I mean, when you when you talk about the heat dome and the devastating loss, more than 600 people dying in that heat dome, and I know there were cases of people checking on their neighbours and, and doing that, but I think it also caught a lot of people by surprise because we hadn't really dealt with something like that before, whereas an earthquake, it clicks in. We've been, we've been talking about this. We've seen it happen in other places. Is that changing a bit that we're getting a better understanding about just how dangerous something like high temperatures can be. I, I do think so. I think the realization w- wasn't there in the, the general population. And that comes back to the first step of, uh, of no emergency preparedness week, which is know your risks, know your hazards. So we, we have a much better, better uh, understanding now of, of extreme heat. And I think we've, you know, we've raised the bar and we continue to promote uh, heat awareness in our, in our community uh, year after year, given what happened in, uh, in the heat dome. Where can people go if they want to maybe get refreshed on, again, the list that you've been talking about and figure out exactly maybe where they may be falling short of emergency preparedness and if they want to change that? There are several places people can go. One is vancouver.ca slash be prepared. And there you'll find a list of of supplies. You'll find uh, links to register for some of our free workshops on emergency preparedness. Um, and, you know, information on, on hazards and risks. And there's lots of information that's translated as well into, into numerous languages for people who don't speak English. All right. Daniel Stevens, thank you so much for this reminder. Always good to have that top of mind and to double check to make sure we are prepared. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. You're welcome. There is an innovative pilot project. It is making headlines in Quebec because it is the first of its kind in Canada. I think this this object seems kind of strange. Uh, so because it's strange, we, we slow down and we look at it. Popular in Europe, this educational awareness reward light, better known by its acronym EARL, is new to Canadian drivers. Stationed outside Marie Laurier School in Brossard, this system, meant to reduce drivers' speed, is the first of its kind in the country. The intelligent traffic light is red by default, but turns green when drivers proceed at the legal speed limit. We're using the signal that drivers already know to stop to make you slow down, and as soon as you get the right speed, it gives you the green light to continue. All right, so could this work here? We wanted to find out more about this device and the pilot project. Joining us to do that is Doreen Assad, the mayor of Brossard. Mayor Assad, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. And also on the line, Anthony Lapointe, the co-owner of the company behind this, Calatech. Anthony Lapointe, thank you as well for your time. 
Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, this seems really interesting and, and a bit of an explanation in that global news story. Uh, maybe, Anthony, can I start with you? Can you can you explain a bit further? What exactly does Earl, uh, the smart light, what does Earl do? So, uh, like my colleague explained, it's basically it's a red light. Picture you're driving towards, for example, a residential area or towards a school. And uh, we're all speeding uh, to some extent, for example, 5 to 10 kilometers above the limit. And picture you're driving towards that school and there's a red light. So what do you do? You lift up, lift up the foot thinking you're about to stop. And then as soon as you hit that 30-kilometer mark, for instance, if it was the limit, then the light gives you the green and you're good to go. So Earl is really an educational awareness reward light. Educational is important because it comes with, uh, with a, an educational sign up ahead that tells you if you're driving the right speed, you'll get the green light. How far away can it track a vehicle or how, how far away can you be and that Earl will still pick up how fast you're going? So it's a smart traffic light. You can set this up. But for example, for a 30-kilometer zone, it picks up about 80 meters away. Uh, and then if you're in a 50 zone, it would pick up a little further. And we mentioned, too, so this is the first in Canada. Has this device been used in other places? Yeah, it's been around for a decade in Europe, actually. Uh, it's been regulated and approved in France two years ago. So Calitech, we're innovative. We look at what's going on across the globe, and we pick up on nice innovations like this one and bring them uh, to, uh, to our country. All right. Doreen Assad, again, the mayor of Brossard. Can you tell us a bit about where this is being used and, and how, your, uh, how Brossard became the first place to use Earl? Of course, with pleasure. So um, as mayor of the city of Broussard with the president of the circulation committee, we, we knew that we really needed to look outside of the box for some creative ideas and see what best practices exist out, out there instead of always looking at the same things, whether it be speed bumps or bollards, when we really wanted a strategy when it came to traffic calming measures. And then when I came across Earl, I was enamored by the idea that instead of taking a punitive approach, instead of giving you know, a ticket after the fact, this educational awareness reward light allowed people to just be rewarded for proper behavior. And so uh, it was within a conference, I believe, related to transportation. Uh, I, I saw Calitech and we embarked on this adventure of doing this pilot project for the course of the next 90 days. So how long has it been in place so far? I'd say a little over a week so far, and I don't want to conclude anything based on the data yet, but I'm really impressed in the sense that on average, we were clocking speed at 40 kilometers an hour. That's 10 kilometers over the speed limit. And ever since Earl has been installed, we've been in the range of about 29 kilometers an hour. So, so far, effective. Wow, that, that is uh, pretty amazing uh, to think that. Uh, have you had any feedback from people? Do people mind that this smart technology is, is clocking them or picking up uh, what they're doing as they drive down the street? Well, look, anything new uh, is a change, and change has to be managed. But I would tell you overall, when I look at the people within that live within the proximity, people in our municipality, I've been getting a lot of very positive feedback. Of course, Sometimes people don't like change and I think maybe don't understand the technology behind the light. So, you know, there's been a bit of debate back and forth, but the fact remains is 
There's no tickets. There's no punitive measures. It's educational. And it allows people to just respect, you know, pedestrians. In the end, you know, we forget sometimes that driving, it's more of a privilege of a right. And I think Earl is just, it's, it's really effective. <laughs> I'm impressed. And Anthony, when you hear that, uh, that, that sounds like Earl, the technology is doing exactly what it was built to do. Yes, exactly. Uh, we're, uh, we're super thrilled about the uh, very preliminary results of this pilot project. We can't wait to complete those, those three months. But uh, right now, there's a lot of interest from other municipalities because uh, reckless driving and speeding is, is an issue almost everywhere. And, and like uh, Mary Assad said, we need to think outside the box. What we have right now is uh, visibly not working, so we need to bring new, uh, new innovations, new solutions on the market to, uh, to, to try to address this issue because it's, uh, it's, it's our pedestrians and our children that are at stake. Uh, have right. there, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I just wanted to add to what Anthony was saying because you know, one of the issues also is the time, the, rea- the time it takes us to install, you know, when I think about a standard traffic light, we're talking in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't know if it's the same across Canada, but for us in Quebec, we realize it's the price post-pandemic with inflation. It's just, it's extremely high and it takes a lot of work and a lot of time in terms of implementation. And what I liked about Earl is it's solar powered. So in the end, it's not that complex and it's affordable. So for us, this became a very, very viable option, depending on what kind of street. Like, it doesn't work in two-lane boulevards. Uh, the, it really shouldn't be placed at intersections or near a crosswalk. We don't want to create a false sense of security. So but there are other streets across the municipality that respond to those criteria. So for me, Earl becomes a contender, something to look at in terms of, of installation in those types of roads. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, that's I wanted to ask Anthony as well that when you when it's new technology and and it's different and as drivers you're not used to seeing this uh, are there any concerns that somebody sees that red light and they slam the brakes on and there might be somebody behind them or or is there that kind of learning curve for drivers So so there are a few parameters like Mira Saad mentioned that we should respect in order to limit the uh, the risk with the solution but uh, like, like she said, b- below 50 zones, so 30, 40, 50 kilometer uh, speed limit, a two-lane street, you don't want a four-lane because then there could be some confusion with the system. And away from pedestrian uh, crosswalks or intersections. That's pretty much it. And then uh, it's a solution that has been around for 10 years in Europe and, and that has proven itself. So, And it's a signal that we were pretty pretty familiar with uh, everybody's familiar with the traffic light so the uh, the reflex there is uh, is pretty uh, pretty automatic in the sense that uh, there's no there's no uh, uh, unexpected behavior to be uh, to, to, to have it's it's just it's a new it's a new light we need to manage it uh, and inform lo- local drivers that there is a new light but uh, but it's nothing to be surprised of when you drive towards it and as the mayor mentioned, so going from people were driving closer to 40 kilometers an hour and now down to 29 with Earl, and that's in a 30 zone. And are you able to track, is it for the, the distance of the street? Because in Vancouver, uh, they, they have put things in at some intersections called banana barriers. They're giant yellow barriers, but they are only at intersections. And we've had discussions on this. I had a, a post on social media that got a lot of attention, mainly because people didn't understand what I was saying. 
saying my concern with these is they do stop people at the intersection. They don't slow down the street. They don't stop people from going 60 as fast as they want until they have to stop for the barricade. Has this shown that it actually does slow down the entire street? So, so far we haven't, uh, we haven't clocked uh, further data down the street. But like we said, this system, uh, and, and this is something that, uh, that we'll do, but this system is really educational. You, you can look at it like a, a boosted radar speed sign. You know those, those speed radar feedback signs that tell you the speed you're going and mm-hmm. tells you to slow down? It's the same principle behind it. It's a Doppler antenna, so the same type of technology. But then you can uh, switch the, uh, the speed display for a red light. But the, the system itself, it's the same goal. We're trying to remind people that this is a critical area. For instance, you're driving towards a school, you're driving towards a residential area. So, so it's really to educate people. So we, would, we, we, can, we can think that the effect will last longer down the street, but, uh, but we'll have to confirm with, uh, with, with data. Right. And, and the, the whole point of a, of a pilot project. Uh, Mayor Assad, if, if this does prove to continue to get people to adhere to that 30 kilometer speed limit and to slow down, I know this is in front of a school right now. Do you see this expanding in, in Quebec? It's my hope. I, uh, well, I, I'm, I'm obviously thinking about wanting to implement it in other areas of the city of Broussard. But it's a, it's a complex file in the sense that right now it's not currently regulated. So we have an opportunity with this pilot project to be able to show the Minister of Transportation, well, here's the data, here's the effect that it had. And if, if they're, you know, open to us being able to implement it larger, well, then, yes, obviously, not only Broussard, but the rest of the province. Right. And just to, to reiterate something, I think you said, because we're so uh, and like um, like Anthony was saying as well, this is already a technology that we're used to seeing. But like you said, it's not punitive. If somebody maybe keeps going and they drive through that red light that Earl has on, it's not as though there's going to be a, a police officer or somebody giving you a ticket. I mean, that that's correct. It's It's not. Well, it's based on the habits that we've learned as drivers. You know, when you see a red light, you are going to slow down. Mm-hmm. So what ends up happening is, is as long as they're respecting the speed, they're not forced to come to that full stop. And in the end, people have to realize that the couple of seconds they think they gain, it's not worth the trouble of, of causing an accident and, or catching or getting a ticket. In this case, it's not because of the light that they would get the ticket, but because of the speed. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, it is really interesting. And uh, I am uh, looking forward to seeing the results of the entire pilot project. Thank you both mm-hmm. of you so much for joining the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Jill. Well, as you likely know, the Broadway plan is in full gear. After many, many years of debate, it was passed at Vancouver City Council. This is all part of the subway project, which if you've been on West Broadway at all recently, you will know that there is a lot of construction. It can be difficult to get to businesses right now to get around along that stretch. That will change when the construction's done. But there are new concerns and questions being asked about the housing that is set to be built 
along that subway project. And one Vancouver city councillor is going to bring a motion forward to council tomorrow. And this is all in an effort to monitor renovations and demolitions all related to that project. That councillor is councillor Pete Fry, and he joins me now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Joe. We've talked about this in the past, and we know Council didn't adopt this, uh, the kind of the rates or the pace of change bylaw. You're bringing another motion forward to Council uh, to, to try and uh, kind of bring that back. What exactly are, does your motion say, uh, the one that is coming to Council tomorrow? Yeah, so, so the pace of change, which was rejected by a majority of Council, was a staff recommendation to limit the amount of uh, demoviction, so redevelopment of, of tenanted apartment buildings in the Broadway corridor area to, to five a year, which staff estimated would have resulted in the displacement of, of about 150 households. Um, without the, the rate of change uh, that was rejected, um, staff have anticipated, based on, on the volume of inquiries and interest from uh, for redevelopment, that that displacement would be about 2,000 households per year. So, so that's sort of what we're we're anticipating. We have a another report coming from staff that also talks about uh, t- tenant relocation protection policies that we have in place on a on a redevelopment as being a a, a barrier uh, for a lot of developers. So the concern is that that, that by itself uh, these tenant relocation protection policies might uh, uh, folks might try and find ways to work around it because the reality is is there's nowhere there's no vacancies enough to accommodate folks who are going to be displaced. So and if that need to replace housing for folks is is the barrier to to, to initiating a development, uh, there's concerns that it could be exploited with loopholes. So as it stands now with the Broadway plan specifically and with the tenant relocation and protection policy, are there protections in place at this point if tenants are renovicted or demovicted, or does that not come into play until later on? Yes, but no. The, the tenant relocation protection policies kick in on a development permit. So a development permit is typically where you're tearing down the building and building a, a rezoning and building a, a whole new structure. Um, what we've just recently seen and, and is apparently an emergent trend is is uh, is renovations under a building permit, which doesn't trigger the tenant relocation protection policy, um, but would force a, a tenant out. So under under a building permit renovation. You could renovate the building down to the studs, put in new walls or whatever, force the tenants to leave to accommodate that, and then they have the right to return at the new rents. Um, but what we've seen just, just a couple of months ago, we had a, a, um, a scenario where a newly renovated older building that uh, was renovated kicked all the longstanding tenants out uh, and then brought in new tenants, and then a year later uh, they filed for a rezoning and to demolish this newly renovated building altogether. So what what they effectively did, whether that was by intent or by accident, they effectively uh, removed all the the tenants who would have otherwise been protected and hence no real barriers to to redeveloping it because now the new tenants are in at market rates and their their length of tenure has only been about a year. So they don't have those same kind of protections that we have put in place for folks who may have been in an apartment building for 20 years and paying, you know, substantially lower rents for instance. Right. So in that scenario, even if somebody was doing that in the Broadway plan, as part of the Broadway plan, if they did that, then like you said, so the tenants who were paying the lower rent, they don't get to come back paying that lower rent. They get offered to come back playing, paying the new market rent. But then if it did, if the, if the tenant relocation and protection policy 
uh, was triggered when the demolition went ahead, they would still be allowed protected under that, but but it would be at a much higher rent. Uh, well, and and a, and a reduced tenure because right. they wouldn't have been there uh, in, in for the same amount of time. Even if you were one of the tenants that was paying the lower rent and you did come back paying the higher rent, does it kind of restart the clock? Uh, it's a good question. I'm not 100% sure, but the reality is, is that a lot of, of folks, once they move, they don't generally come back and, you know, spin their wheels for two years while, the, while, while a building is being renovated or whatever the time constraint is, that they typically will find a new place to go uh, and, and settle there. Right. Yeah. And I mean, nobody, I, I've yet to meet anybody that enjoys moving and especially moving several times in a number of years. Uh, I'm sure it's not uh, not something that, that a lot of people would like uh, to do. Uh, so, so in the scenario that you just kind of outlined, are there there are no protections then in place right now or nothing that would stop developers from doing that? Uh, technically, no, no, there's not. And so, so the idea here with this motion is to really get staff to, to track it, because what we've seen with this new council, the, the elimination of the, the renter's office, which was sort of tasked with tracking those kind of building permit renovations, um, and then with, with the elimination of the pace of change, we, we don't have a lot in place to kind of track and protect renters from that kind of scenario. So really making more of an intention to, to keep on top of this and, and, and have staff analyze the, the building permits, which is material that we have already because we, we issue the building permits and we keep that all in the open data uh, and, and tracking that and correlating it so that we're, we're, we're watching for this trend, uh, hopefully, which isn't emergent, but there is obviously there's, a, there's a, a, an incentive there to redevelop these properties. Um, and if, if tenant protections are in the way of, you know, what we're seeing is pretty substantive uh, prices for some of these purpose-built older apartment buildings in the, in the Broadway corridor. Um, that are way above the, the actual value of the of the building as, a, as it currently stands as a rental apartment, um, you know, relative to the, the, the rents that are bringing that are being brought in. These are speculative investments, and if folks are indeed speculating, and there are no limits on the amount of rental apartment buildings that can be demolished, other than the need for tenant relocation and protection policy, uh, that becomes sort of like the the weakest link in in our, in our policy, and it's. Um, that's where I'm afraid that people may try and work around it. My guest is Vancouver City Councillor Pete Fry. We are talking about his motion coming to council tomorrow. This is an effort to monitor renovations as well as demolitions all related to the Broadway subway project. Now, going back, uh, Councillor Fry, to the passing of the Broadway plan, it took a long time for council to pass this, but when it was passed, it was touted as one plan that had the toughest rental protections that were locked into it. So was that not the case? It does have them, have them, but like I say, there is ways to work around that. And I think part of what why staff were coming back with this proposed pace of change that was rejected by this council uh, was to, to, to keep limits on the amount of, of dem evictions that were happening in, in the Broadway corridor. So staff had proposed limiting the amount of apartment building demolitions until such a time as some of the new sort of brownfield and grayfield sites, which were basically unoccupied sites that wouldn't displace anybody, could be developed out. And staff had anticipated that we had enough development interest outside of the apartments to accommodate 6,300 new households. So the idea was to prioritize those first so that we had places for folks to go so that when it came time for a legitimate redevelopment of their, their lot, they could 
be obliged under these tenant relocation protection policies because there wouldn't be places for them to go. Currently, there's not, and that's going to be the challenge. Right. And and I know, and this is mentioned in your motion as well, that we've heard from Landlord BC from the uh, Urban Development Institute. We've talked to development companies on this show as well, that uh, there is some concern that if the protections were brought in were even stricter or there were more rules brought in, that, that it might not make development all that appealing to a lot of companies or that might even slow development even more. Is it a, a, a delicate kind of balancing act trying to figure out how to protect people, but also how to develop what I believe is, is often called the, the second downtown. Yeah, no, for sure. And it is a delicate balance because we do recognize that there's a lot of headwinds against development, not the least of which, you know, inflationary pressures, uh, labor shortages, all these kind of things, and, and increasingly tenant protections that are, that are running against development. But when we talk about the need to bring on new housing supply to support the growth in our city, we have to recognize that the housing crisis is, isn't just a lack of new supply, it's also a lack of affordable supply for folks who are already here. And so if we're seeing moves that are going to result in the, the displacement of upwards of 2,000 households a year, which is what staff actually contemplated in the pace of change with no protections, um, that's, that's, that's a lot of displacement. 2,000 households a year, there's no, there's no room for folks uh, to be sort of accommodated in that kind of massive displacement in our city right now, certainly not in the Broadway corridor, and certainly not at the, at the price points that many of them would be paying in some of these older purpose-built apartment buildings that largely make up some of the most affordable stock in the city of Vancouver right here in the Broadway corridor. So with the the way council is made up right now, though, with the fact that the, the pace of change wasn't approved, how confident are you that this motion could get approved or could get support of other councillors? Yeah, it's, you know, it, it I would hope it's not a partisan issue because it, it, it shouldn't be. And really, the motion is, is, is really just asking for like staff to, to keep tabs on this and report back with any mechanisms they feel might be warranted if it indeed is a problem. And I would hope on that basis alone, it, it's not, you know, sort of binding in the sense that it will actually uh, slow down developer interests right now. It would just keep a better track on it and then report back to us. So it should be something that I think all of council should get behind. But you know, partisan politics being partisan politics, it may may not come to pass. I, I, I can't predict how the outcome will be. Right. It'll be an interesting discussion, though. Oh, for sure. Is Are there any concerns, or do you have concerns that it will be an interesting discussion, I'm sure, but are there even concerns that the protections that are in this plan uh, could be watered down even more? Does anything stop that from happening? Uh, yeah, no, no there's, that could be the will of council, and that's that does worry me because we didn't anticipate that the renter's office would be uh, uh, eliminated so quickly into this new term, yet it was, uh, and frankly didn't anticipate that the staff's recommendations for a pace of change uh, on redevelopment and displacement of apartment buildings in the Broadway quarter would also be rejected um, summarily. So, so yeah, I am worried that, that in fact, if... And, and again, we have this report coming tomorrow talking about kind of regulatory red tape and what some of the hurdles are for getting developments on track with, with our planning department and where we can move the dial. And, and tenant protection policies do figure and factor in, in what potentially could be slowing the, the pace of development. Um, I think there's lots of red tape that we could eliminate to encourage uh, developers to get the product online faster. Obviously, we can't do anything about inflation. and We can't do anything about labor shortage, really. But... But I, I, I don't want to see uh, tenant protections uh, for folks who live and work in our city being seen as a barrier that, that 
uh, could be eliminated to speed up private development. Okay. I think the market, you know, the market won't save us in, entirely. We need to have thoughtful kind of interventions from from policymakers to make sure that we're not abandoning some of our most vulnerable populations. And that's the oath of office that I took is caring for the vulnerable in our city. Do you have any concerns that uh, the provincial government could potentially get involved like we've seen in, in some other developments? Not the, the same thing that we're talking about in the Broadway plan, although uh, the the former housing minister, now premier, has said that, that councils need to get things built. So are you concerned at all that the provincial government could look at this and say, no, you need to go full steam ahead? Well, you know, the province has stepped in to tighten some of the, the, the rules around renovations already. And, and, and recognize that this is a problem. We saw what happened in Metro Town where we saw significant displacement of older affordable rental stock with no replacement kind of to, to come online to, to support those folks, and they were largely displaced out of their community. So I think everybody's a little leery of, of, of um, a repeat of that scenario. And, and, and like I mentioned, you know, staff did point out that there's at least 6,300 units of housing that could be built without displacing anyone in the Broadway corridor. And so it's about timing. It's about sort of prioritizing, you know, let's let's get it built, but let's also recognize that as we're displacing people with nowhere for them to go, that also contributes to a lot of our, our housing woes. All right. Councillor Fry will be looking at, to see what happens tomorrow when this report comes forward. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jill. Take care.